Hello and welcome to the Unpruned Interview. My name is Sarah Brown and this is a series of Garden Organic Interviews where we let our guests chat at length on subjects which are close to their hearts. Often the topic is too important or too riveting for us to press the edit button. In gardening terms you could say we're happy to leave their words unpruned. Our guest this month is Catherine Dawson. Catherine has been technical director at Melcourt, testing and producing the right mix for their highly successful potting composts. There's little that Catherine doesn't know about ingredients, mulches, composting processes and mixes. These are all things that are vital for growing success for us gardeners. And Melcourt are specialists in peat-free composts. You may know their products. They're called SilverGrow. We know that peat isn't necessary in horticulture. For over 50 years, the horticultural industry has plundered our beautiful peat bogs, destroying rare habitats and perhaps, more importantly, destroying a vital carbon sink, thus adding to our greenhouse gas emissions and exacerbating global heating. But now, because of research and commitment by companies like Melcourt, we can not only buy peat-free composts, but also have confidence that they will work. Gone are the days of poor results. A good peat-free compost will match and even outperform its peat-filled counterpart. I wanted to know what goes into a bag of potting compost. How sustainable are its raw materials? And why is peat-free more expensive? I hope you find Catherine's expertise enlightening and you enjoy our unpruned interview. Catherine, what I'd like to do is go right back to the beginning and ask you, why was peat used in the first place? What gave peat its popularity, do you think? Peat came along at a time when, in days gone by, the nursery industry relied on on bare root plants. Everything was lifted, deciduous plants were lifted in, in the winter months, sold bare root um, in in nurseries, garden centres didn't exist. Um, the rise of the garden centre meant that they they were very keen on on year round sales um, to extend the selling season. Once you put something in a container, you can sell it at any time of year. Peat was discovered because it was a local ingredient. This country has a lot of peatland. Had a lot had of peat. a lot of peat because the container is transportable. You can put it under cover. That's you can right. control the watering. You can control the conditions in which the plant is growing. Exactly, and most importantly, or as importantly, you can keep it in that pot during the summer months, as long as you look after it, which you couldn't do with a bare root plant. So almost immediately, you've extended the garden centre selling period. And what did peat bring to the pot? It brought lightness. If you have soil in a pot, anybody who likes John Innes composts will know that soil is very heavy. It's about three times as heavy than peat, bark, all of these much lighter ingredients. If you're transporting a lot of pots um, overland to, to the garden centre from the nursery, weight costs money in a lorry. Also, the nursery workers, if you're lifting a tray of soil-based compost plants, a lot heavier. Soil is inherently variable holds weeds if it's not sterilised. Sterilising it is a time-consuming, costly process. But the variability is if you're a nurseryman trying to produce a a uniform um, grade out of plants. So for all sorts of reasons, peat came along as this wonder material, largely weed-free, very good growing medium, and there's, there's no doubt about it that if properly prepared, the right particle size grading and all of that, and properly fed and limed, 
Peat is a brilliant growing medium. Um, it's been one of the problems for the peat alternatives industries to produce something that's quite as good. Um, so the nursery industry quickly adapted to peat. And I actually believe that for, for nurserymen who were used to soil-based composts, we hear a lot about making the transition from peat-based composts to peat-free compost and the, the change in handling, the change in management, the change in knowledge that you need. I think that is very minor compared to the change that the nurserymen who went from soil to peat would have had to have got used to. And it's interesting, I think, also that the industry itself that grew up around peat, mixing peat with other controlled fertilisers, for instance, Mm -hmm. the industry grew up around that and is up and running, knowing exactly which balance of fertilisers to use, how they release, exactly. and, and so on. So all of these things, this, this was the job of people like us, coming along and, and trying to emulate the very good growing quality that you could get from a peat-based compost, but actually do it differently with materials that didn't necessarily re- react in the same way from a lime, nutrient, a water point of view. So let's talk about those materials. Can you give me the key materials that you use, that Melcourt uses in their bagged compost? Yes. And for the industry in general, there are still, at any realistic commercial level, only four alternatives to peat that are being used in any quantity at all. Only four. four. Give me the four. Wood-based materials, coir, green compost, which has um, issues, but is used, and bark. Okay. Now, there are all sorts of other materials being used. People will be saying, oh, but what about this, what about that? Yes, but none of them is being used in any sort of quantity compared to these these four. We've got things like spent mushroom compost, perlite, vermiculite, loam, which is still used at, at retail level, and in small quantities by professional growers. Here at Melcourt, uh, because of our forest residue history, our our managing director was a forester by trade, and so that was his world. Those were the materials that he knew. Can we unpack those four then and look at them individually? Mm. Let's start off with the wood Mm fibre. Any sort of wood? In this country, the only volumes of wood that are available in sufficient quantity are softwood, coniferous. There is no big enough hardwood uh, timber industry in this country that a residues industry could rely on. So it's all coniferous. And the woods that are available, obviously the spruces are the most available, pines, Douglas fir, larch, softwood. Um, Wood fibre which the ingredient that timber residues get turned into to be used in growing media, falls into two main categories. Most of the growing media companies are using a almost like a wood wool. It's a bit like rock wool made out of wood. Fibrous, light, fluffy, reasonably inert, reasonably low in pH and nutrients, which means you have a blank canvas. It's always easier with a growing medium ingredient if you have low pH, low nutrient, because then you're in control. Then you can lime up to whatever pH you want. You could add nutrients to make it low nutrient, medium nutrient, high, whatever. The wood fibre that Melcourt uses isn't an extruded wood in of that I was going to say, where does this wood fibre... Is it a waste product from trees that have been cut down for other purposes? Nothing on on a tree is waste anymore. It all has a financial value. The wood that we use... um, is not a highly ex- it's not extruded at all it's more a screened out wood residue mm-hmm. it's um i just don't want to get too commercially no no um so if, if yes, i can just say that ours commercial is, secrets here that we don't that want to there share. Are, yes but I all I, I, I say is that that 
the one that people will encounter in a lot of other products is a more wood wool, a much lighter, okay. much more highly fibrous. Ours is more um, of a screened out material from yeah. from other uses, but it's still good commercial value to, to the sawmill, so it's in no way a waste. So I, I think that's the point that I'm getting at with each of these ingredients is what their, for want of a better phrase, their sustainability yes. in, in, uh, credentials are. One of the problems with the wood chip that is the starting point of the wood wool type of ingredient is that it's also highly desired by the wood-fired power station industry, biomass. That's an industry that still gets quite a lot of government subsidy because it's a renewable source of energy. So they're a huge consumer of it. They're a massive consumer of it. Um, And the horticultural world, not so big. Not so big and not subsidised. Um, and I have heard it said by one company that the price to them has doubled in recent years. So with wood, you've, you at Melcourt, have, it sounds like you've got a good consistent supply of a particular wood particle, fines as you call it, mm-hmm. which goes into your mix. That's right. What about bark? Bark, likewise, is a forest residue. The first thing that happens to a log when it comes in from the forest, it goes through a debarker. The bark is taken off and then the the log goes off to have whatever its purpose is done to it. We take the bark, the one thing we try and avoid is chopping it because that's a very energy consuming process and actually we find that we don't need to chop all but the very small residue at the end that is too big. Most of it we grade into the different sizes of mulches that we do or the play surfaces we sell bark chips for play surfaces the slightly finer material would find its way into a soil improvement grade of bark or indeed the going back to the beginning of the conversation we were talking about the chippier bark that was used as a as an opener for peat increasingly that size that small chip is used as a pot mulch which is a a method of uh, weed control that growers will use instead of using herbicides on nurseries now Many of those herbicides, thankfully, have been withdrawn. But weeds on nurseries are problems, both broadleaf weeds, liverwort and moss, particularly under tunnels. Lower light, really favourable to moss and liverwort. A thin layer of a chipped bark on the surface of the compost is fantastic. You can virtually eradicate moss and liverwort. That's interesting. I should use that in my greenhouse. Yes, it's uh, any long-term crop, and particularly liner nurseries, um, propagation nurseries, they find this a very useful method. And you'll see it in garden centres. You'll often see bark chip all over the surface of display areas in garden centres now because it does come off. One of the reasons it works is because it's loose and it's dry, but because it's loose and it's dry, it falls off if the pot gets blown over or whatever. But in the bag of potting compost, it, like the wood fibre, it's providing this looseness in structure. Is that right? In, when it, what else does it bring to the bag? The, the, the bark in a, in, yes. some, in, a, in a growing medium. Yes. Well, the bark that we use um, in growing media is very much at the, the fi- very fine end. So six millimetres and down, that sort of size. Again, trying to get moisture holding capacity. Um, bark is inherently low in pH. It'll, a pine bark starts at about 5 to 5.5. Very useful because then you can just add a little bit of lime to bring it up and it'll provide a bit of calcium and magnesium. A growing medium in a pot provides anchorage for roots, provides the air, the water and the nutrients. That balance of air and water, particle size, 
contributes to that. It's the main contributor to, to the amount of water versus the amount of air that a compost will hold. And the skill is, for the particular plant group, getting the right amount of air, the right amount of moisture. Now, in a large pot with a tree that might be in there for 18 months, two years, if you imagine a 50-litre pot, the amount of weight bearing down on the lower layers, you need a very strong compost that's going to withstand that gradual slumping and that slump towards airless moisture, um, high water-holding conditions that will mm. kill the roots. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's where a chippy bark can be really useful because it's got a good amount of structural strength, a good ability to hold air-filled porosity. When you've got a very small pot, say a nine centimeter, that weight bearing down is nothing like the same, and so you don't need to have such a, a bit finer. Yes. yes, but bark is very resilient to breakdown. Yes, on the tree, bark is the protector. It protects what's going on underneath. It has a natural moisture resistance. One of the reasons when we've screened the bark into the different sizes, the mulch, the soil improver grade, the chippy grade down to the fines, we compost the fines in order to break down that natural moisture-resistant capacity that bark naturally has and needs to perform, perform its job on the outside of a tree trunk. Um, but we want it, when we're trying to emulate peat, we want it to hold moisture, we have to break that down. Yeah, we're going to come on to composting in a minute and composting processes. But I'm guessing the third element in the bag, the coir, is also there, not from the nutrient point of view necessarily, but from the structure. Is that right? We use coir for moisture holding. Coir loves moisture. Um, Should we just explain what coir is? Coir, yes, coir fibre, which is the outside layer of a coconut massive coconut industry in countries like um, Sri Lanka, India, the Philippines, tropical countries where it's used for everything, the, the, the flesh, the milk, the hard coating, the fibrous immediate coating of is used for matting, for roping and all that kind of thing. The bit that horticulture uses very widely, worldwide now, is the fibrous bit on the very outside. The um, hairy bit of the coconut, the, is that um, right? Yes, although... The wiry, hairy bits that get used in brushes, we don't want, actually. They're a nuisance. They, they wind themselves around augers and potting equipment and all of that. Um, we, we want the fibre, the fine fibre. It comes in different grades, but we use a very fine grade because we're always up against moisture-holding capacity. The woods and the barks, they are, however much we compost them, and we do very thoroughly, um, they, they still don't tend to hold quite as much moisture as an average sphagnum peat. So for us, the coir is the thing that just helps that. It's also a very good wetting agent. If you can imagine um, a very, very dry block of coir, which is the way that we buy them, if you put that in a bucket of water, it immediately swells and takes it in. Even in its very dry state, it takes water in. You imagine a block of peat in its very dry state. We've all had that irritating situation where we all do it, we try not to, but we allow the plants to dry out. Getting it rewetted can be a real problem. Great coir doesn't do that. It rewets very, very easily. And so for us, we, we use the coir to almost wick the water into the corners of the compost. We use a fine one, so although we use a very low volume, a very low percentage in the mix, a small amount goes a long way 
to encouraging water into every last drop of, of the compost. That's very interesting. And of course, we're now, in terms of sustainability, we're now sourcing our ingredients away from local. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of people are concerned about the footprint mm-hmm. of yes. bringing Koya to this country. That... Um, is something that will get captured in the responsible sourcing scheme, which we may get onto. But Koya travels reasonably efficiently. It's after it's been prepared in the country of origin, it's dried using natural drying of the sun. It's then compressed on a one to six basis into very compact blocks, which are then palletized and put in a container and brought to this country or wherever by ship. The emissions from shipping per tonne per kilometre, it's one of the lowest emissions of any transport form. It's even better if stuff is loose in the hold of a ship. Containerised shipping is bad. Now, people will be thinking about, hang on a minute, I've heard that shipping is one of the largest emitters of carbon. Possibly possibly true because of the number of ships out there, but per tonne per kilometre, which is the way I think you have to look at it, 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 it's much better than, say, lorry transport or air freight or that kind Mm. of thing. So you could almost compare a lorry from way up in the north of Scotland bringing wood fibre down to the south of England with Hoya being transported from Sri Lanka to the south of England. Obviously, ideally, it wouldn't be done, and we certainly are always on the lookout for materials that might enable us to have less reliance on Hoya. But these are the sort of sums that the, throughout the peat debate there's been a lot of emotion and a lot of myth. One of the things that we're now getting to is more evidence about all of these things. So it's a very oft claimed um, comment that Koya, oh, I wouldn't like to use it, it comes all of that way. Now we're able to put some figures on that and some comparisons. Once you drill down into how it's transported, the situation doesn't look quite so bad. I'm not at all saying well it's great let's keep doing it forever it's ideal but we have to we have to look at the evidence and make the comparisons and as you say anything that comes from the north of Scotland on a lorry down to the south of England is emitting large amounts I would just add that we don't bring bark down from the north of Scotland <laughs> we, much of ours is, is much, much much closer than that but it is an issue and it is something that very much will be captured by the new responsible sourcing of growing media scheme. We'll come on to that responsible sourcing growing media scheme because it's fascinating the work it's doing but I want to just keep digging into this bag that I bought yes. from the garden centre and I've come up with the fourth ingredient which is the green compost also known as green waste. Yes green 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 waste being the material that we all put in our green bins and that gets collected at uh, civic amenity sites the arisings of anything from um, food waste even now to prunings grass cuttings or Christmas trees green green material that gets chopped composted and um, compost is a very high heat. Very too. high heat, yes. yes. There is a certification scheme, PASS 100 is the, the measure by which um, these things are done, and responsible companies would only buy from composting sites that hold PASS 100 certification because it demonstrates that the job is being done to a, a good level of um, the, the right management, the right temperatures, and the testing is done on things like Are there any remaining human pathogens, for instance? Are there any remaining weed seeds? Are there any physical contaminants in there, bits of glass, bits of plastic? If you're buying from a certified site, in theory, that these things should have been addressed. Green 
compost is, is the resulting material from the process of composting green waste. For growing media companies, there is a higher level of certification, a higher level of attention to the detail of the composting process that effectively and legally turns green waste into not a waste anymore. It's something That's called a quality protocol, which allows companies such as Melcourt to buy that output from the waste handling company as a product rather than a waste. So it's already passed the PASS 100 That's test. right. You have now bought it and now you go through another process. No, the company no. that we buy it from has gone through this extra layer of certification to demonstrate okay. adherence, if you like, to, to the to the protocol of the quality protocol, that, you know, what, that extra layer. And uh, so it gives us the confidence. Now, I would add, we, we, we don't use green compost ourselves in most of our uh, retail and professional products. It comes at a very high pH, often in excess of 8. It's got a high nutrient level. All of these things can be harnessed, particularly the high nutrient level. It delivers its nutrients in a nice, gentle, slow-release way. So it has a huge value in that respect. But we need to know. You need to know more about it. Remember I mentioned the blank canvas, that anything yes. with a low pH and a low nutrient content, it makes the job of a growing media manufacturer much easier because we start with this um, empty bowl, if you like. With green compost, the bowl's half full already with, with, uh, with nutrients that we have to account for we need to be cleverer in mm -hmm. a sense to deal with those and like any compost even homemade compost those nutrient levels will vary according to what's gone into the heap yes although there have been a and lot how of long it's been working yes. for and there have been quite a few studies on that that show that that seasonality you know it's all grass clippings in august and christmas trees in january that actually by the time you've gone through a thorough composting process the nutrient variability isn't as great as you'd think. They found more variability between different sites where there was slightly different management than they did within one site within different seasons. Now that was work that was done many years ago. Essentially, as a use as a professional user, as a manufacturer using these materials, we have to look at every batch. And we work closely. We only buy from one very good site that we trust. But for instance what about herbicide residues? And mm. any organic grower would be very, very wet. Well, any grower, nobody wants herbicide residues in compost that they're dressing their allotment with, mm. for instance. Um, and These are weed killers that are persistent in their action. That's right. Even through the composting even process. Even through the composting and it's process. it's devastating when you then yes. use it. And there's been a lot of pressure put on the government to try and rid garden industry. of. I think there's only one or two remaining chemicals that are allowed. It's lawn, weed and feed can be a particularly pernicious um, and long-lasting they're the ones that can also go, go through the gut of a horse or a cow and come out pretty well intact you yeah, hope the house the horse is also intact yes they, they seem <laughs> probably to not affect the animal although we don't know do we but um, so with green compost a lot of care on sourcing it is actually something that garden organic and the soil association are looking into mm. talking to the uh, manufacturers of these herbicides and possibly taking at the moment they're policing themselves, mm. but we're hoping to take this a step further and getting the HSE involved and the chemicals division of the HSE okay. involved. Mm. It's, it, it is, it's important to us. We've had members who've reported 
that they, their crops have been devastated. The test for herbicide contamination that's used in PAS 100 is something that anyone who's got any doubts about any material, compost, farmyard manure... It's the, the bean the, test. It's the broad bean test, yep. Just get a three litre or a, a pot of any size, so sow your broad beans in. If you can do it under cover, it speeds the whole thing up. But very quickly, um, the broad bean, and, and actually the test actually uses field bean, even more mm. sensitive. There's not much difference between a broad bean and a field bean, but field bean is the, said to be the more sensitive, um, and you'll soon see with distorted tops if the compost you've brought in has, has got a problem, and that's an easy thing to do. Okay, so we've got the four component parts that are in the bag, the wood fibre, the bark, the coir, and in some cases in green compost. You've explained the thought that goes into creating the right structure for the plant roots to develop, and that involves aeration and moisture. Let's talk about nutrients. How do you get the nutrients into the bag to feed that plant? Um, Well, obviously the basic requirements of most plants are NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and, and trace elements. It's fairly well-worn territory, the ratios of the NPK and the trace elements that are required. And so we don't spend too much time trying to reinvent any wheels in that respect. Organically, we have to do it differently, obviously. We can't use our artificial fertilisers mm-hmm. that, that go into the conventional range. We, we, we purchase in a compound, soil association-approved organic fertiliser that uses a wide range of organic sources, including the hoof and horn, dried blood, the bone meal, the vine waste, the various plant and Mm -hmm. animal-derived fertilisers. And then it's simply a case of, if I'm honest, using the manufacturers, using their expertise, knowledge of what should work with our ingredients doing the trials and testing, balance that we have to find is putting enough organic fertiliser in for the product to work until there's an expectation that supplementary feeding would have to kick in at some stage. But equally, now that we sell into the retail world, we have to be mindful that that product could also sit on a garden centre shelf for quite a while. Now, organic fertilisers start to mineralise, in other words, become available from the minute they get damp they can the dry ingredient can sit in its bags on our shelves in our warehouse for a long long time and will stay exactly stable and they won't change at all but the minute you put them into a growing medium where there is a moisture content there is potential for them to start to chug away the microbes get to work and do their thing which is turning the organic fertilizer the organic nutrients into a mineral form that is then available to the plant. And this is before it's even got into the bag to be transported to the garden Yes, centre. although in fact manufacture is in one day, it would always happen in one day, we, we, add, we, we make the compost and bag it immediately. Oh, it's as quick as that? Oh yes, the, the bulk ingredients have all had their composting time and their preparation time, so at this point... The point of adding the fertiliser is, is also the point of bagging. Oh, OK. I, actually, we have an agreement with the Soil Association that the, the organic materials are all mixed essentially on the ground with loading shovels. It's, it's a big process, but we don't put them through the mixing line because of any potential for contamination. So this is specifically the bags of organic certified potting compost? That's right. So have we got to the stage then that we're going to have best before dates on potting compost bags? When you say that the process has already started once you mix. 
Well, one of the reasons we chose the, the organic fertiliser that we now use is that it's very stable. It requires quite a lot of moisture to start working. So if we were to analyse it, for instance, a week after manufacture, we'd still pick up very, very low nutrient levels, which can be unnerving. When you're used to the conventional world, you test a compost a week after manufacture, you'd be expecting to see a nice raft of NPK readily available. With organics, it's different. So we've, we've chosen a product that it stays relatively stable. However, fresh compost is always best. On the back of our packs, we advise use within the season of purchase. Um, but you're right, it is a very grey area. The industry has been asked by certain consumer organisations to look at best before dates, but it's, it's an area that's fraught with problems. What we're trying to do is encourage garden centres of all of our products, not just the organic ones, don't carry over from one year to the next. If you don't sell the materials, don't wheel them out following spring. They'll be wet, they'll you know it, it's just it's not good practice and so on our bags we just say use within the season of purchase even if the bag is sealed even it's if, to do with what's happening inside it the bag is, and the bags then they are sealed but they're not watertight because you have to have little holes in the bag to let it breathe and also when it goes onto a palletizer they have to be effectively squashed um, in order to be flat enough to sit securely and safely on a pallet and then to do that you need to press the, the air out. In pressing the air out you do restrict microbial activity so that's a good thing. Uh, it wouldn't be a good thing if it went on forever but in the lifetime of, of the average bag that's a, that is a good thing. It helps stability but it, yes it's a, it, it's a key area that the industry we ought to be on best before but, but it also involves what you, what you do with something that is past its best before date and how are you then creating yes. yet another waste product yes. which then has to be dealt with and i think a reality for a lot of the industry not us because we're not as big as some of the very big players out there but a lot of the bigger companies they're bagging in the autumn for sales as potentially as late as april because of the sheer quantity of bags that they have to prepare, palletise, store, get out to the garden centres. It can't all be done for the spring rush. They just simply couldn't keep up without investing huge amounts in extra machinery. So that then, how do you deal with that and best before dates? Mm. Because you don't know when it's going to be sold. Mm -hmm. But it, all I would say to anybody buying a bag of compost anywhere, whether conventional or organic, is try your best to view the bag. Does it look fresh? Does it feel really, really heavy? Is it dripping water out of the bottom? Because we've had that. Mm. If it is, don't buy it. Go and see the garden centre manager and say, you know, you shouldn't be selling this compost. Or even engage with the store in the first place yes, and say, how right. recent is that delivery? Mm. Gosh, I'm being taken down areas I never knew. This wonderful <laughs> this world of composting. I think what's something I want to visit, actually going back, is you've got the raw ingredients in, the wood and the bark and the coir, then there's a composting process of those, is that not right? Not together. So they're each individually composted? Yes, not the coir. Coir no. doesn't compost. Okay. But the bark and the wood, in their separate processing streams, yeah. are, are composted. They are stacked. Why? 
and turned. But you remember we were talking about... We're degrading about, the moisture repellent. That's that's right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's getting rid of the rough edges. It's just making it more amenable to use. But increasing the moisture holding capacity is one of the main reasons. Um, I mean, people are often worried about toxins in, in bark. It's not something that we've ever been overly bothered by. I, bearing in mind, we, we're doing trials and testing all the time. We have a nursery site over in East Anglia that, that we use, testing these things all of the time, including shelf life, just going back to that other thing. But um, with the wood, it's, it's the same process that wood... Although it hasn't got the job of keeping water off in the tree, it can be naturally moisture resistant. Mm. With the wood, we do compost it with nitrogen, which precludes it from use in organic systems. So we don't have the wood fibre in any of the organic product, but in everything else we do, adding the nitrogen at composting stabilises it from a nitrogen drawdown point of view. Mm. Everybody will be aware that if you were to dig raw fresh wood into a soil, the you would get be nitrogen a, robbery. As you they would, it. yes, because yes. that—that's the microbes. They need nitrogen to for their metabolism. Yes. If they can't get it from the wood that they're trying to break down, they'll take it from anywhere they can get it. Fertilizer, the soil, mm. and so by adding a specified amount of nitrogen at the point of composting the wood, we can stabilize it. And of course, organic growers are not beyond adding their own nitrogen by weeing. Of course. <laughs> just remind, just remind listeners why nitrogen can't be used in the organic bag. Oh, sorry, the the wood yes. that's for the organic yes. bag. Yes, we 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 could use an an organic form of nitrogen, which would make it acceptable. Um, the reality is that the inorganic form that we use is is a lot lot cheaper. And at the moment, we sell far more conventional growing media than we do organic, and so we have to bow to that commercial imperative as they say and and use an inorganic cheap form of, of nitrogen to to do that stabilization mm. it's interesting for the listener to understand that the point of this particular interview is to talk about peat-free compost and what yes. goes into it and you have a range of peat-free compost and one of the prime producers but if you're deep green organic then you will need to buy the organic bag compost yeah. so Catherine you mentioned the responsible sourcing group which has been gathered together to look at the different component parts of peat-free compost. And that can be anything from coir to wood to all the different constituent parts, as I say, that are part of the mix. Um, Tell me a little bit about the sourcing group and the work that it does. In 2011... The government had an environment white paper in which peat targets were enshrined. And... In support of those targets, it set up a task force. It was industry-wide. It had everything from the NGOs, the the Garden Organic, the Friends of the Earth, uh, RSPB, Bug Life, anyone who wanted to join from a conservation organisation. It also included the big retailers, B&Q, Homebase and the like, the manufacturers of growing media, um, the RHS, uh, growers, and a large room full of people which sort of headstormed really the you know what did we need to do to to reduce some of the barriers why haven't we made more progress with peat reduction and obviously a key a key member was the was the the peatland companies themselves Um, a series of working groups were set up a raft of 12 projects came out of the working groups and all the sort of brainstorming. And gradually, gradually, those 12 projects have distilled down into a couple of key projects, one of which was the responsible sourcing calculator. What that does, essentially, 
is it looks at all growing medium ingredients, including peat. When you, sorry, when you say a calculator, is this a machine? It's a, a, a programme method. Mm-hmm. What, what, what essentially, seven criteria have been drawn up that measure environmental and social credentials. I'll give you some examples. Um, how much energy is required in the manufacture of this ingredient? In the case of forestry, it goes right back to the forest. In the case of peat, it goes right back to the peat bog. The coir, it goes right back to the coconut plantation. How much water has been used in the production of this material? Now, in forestry, very little, apart from getting the forest established. In the case of coir, quite a lot, because it's washed. Mm -hmm. Going back to the energy, how much energy is required to make this material fit for purpose but also to transport it. Mm. So, so that's where carbon footprint, exactly. water footprint. So the transportation is captured in the energy section. So when going back to the coir, how much energy is required to get it from India to the UK or the States or wherever? How much energy is required to chop up the bark? Well, we don't chop bark ourselves. But how much energy is required to bring it from the forest to the sawmill? to the processing site. So, so that's energy, we begin mm. to get the idea. Mm. Habitat and biodiversity impact. Yes. So here, how much is a forest having an impact on the local habitat and biodiversity? This is the big one for peat. You know, how much damage do we do when mm. we drain a peatland is captured with that criterion. Okay. Renewability. Yes, I was going green, to say scarcity. Yes, green compost <laughs> scores very well on renewability. Things like peat, vermiculite, permite, perlite, which are derived from rock, not renewable in any human scale. Peat, whatever some people would say, is not renewable in any kind of sensible human scale of time. Forestry is renewable within, say, 50 years, so would score slightly lower than green compost, but higher, certainly, than peat. Mm. So that's renewable. Um, Pollution. How much pollution is generated in the process? Um, Social compliance so things like working conditions so this is there to capture not only the working conditions in India the Philippines or wherever but also the working conditions in this country we're all having to demonstrate that this is thought about that there are protocols in place resource use efficiency is about wastage how much waste is produced so you begin to see that that every ingredient from every manufacturer because this isn't all peat and all bark Mm. treated in the same way it'll be Melcourt's bark so Melcourt how many pollution incidents have you had in the last 12 months the last 18 months I would just say none thankfully but but (laughs) I'm just using that as an example where has you you know Mr Peatland over there where has your peat actually come from and how much is it from a site of special Mm. special scientific interest well in fact in this country it wouldn't be because there isn't any of that going on here anymore but these are the sort of things that are captured and so what you build up for every one of these criteria there is a score Mm. and if you then put those all together which is where the calculator comes in you begin to get some kind of idea of the impact in all of these different ways that using that material has how does the consumer understand this i can see that from the manufacturer's point how does this get translated to the consumer the ultimate aim and i have seen um that we're aiming to do this by spring of next year there will be a sort of traffic light scheme on bags of participating companies and it's hoped that everyone will participate. It's a lot of work to gather that information together. It will be fully audited. We've all been test audited to, to make sure we're going down the right lines. But in the way, that when you buy a fridge, you'll find an A to H 
scheme on the yes. side with an arrow opposite and it'll be hoped that growing media for compost that the consumer will be able to, to gauge the impact now you have that informed decision that's right to make if you're going to buy a bag of compost yes now that's um, it's a complicated thing because of the seven criteria each of which for each ingredient um, one one thing that has yet to happen because we're still gathering the data for the first proper audit is the benchmarking where, where yes. are the red lines how yes. bad is bad you know how much energy is untenable no buyer at B&Q should be interested in this product because of the energy or the water so it'll be a tool that we're hoping will be very useful for the big buyers the specifiers and of course nurserymen in selling their plants will have an interest in this as well because hopefully the big buyers of plants, whether it's for a big landscape scheme. Government projects were supposed to be peat-free by 2015 and there was very, very little resource by the government put into promoting that. So it came and went as a target. The next target is this very year. Garden centres are supposed to be selling only peat-free products. RHS Wisley has taken the decision and you can't buy a bag that's got peat in it at Wisley anymore. But... um, we know that other garden centres have not met that target. No. But I think the target is turning the heads of garden centre buyers. So so the responsible sourcing scheme will have an impact, I think. And its strength is now we're talking about real evidence rather than myth, emotion and all the things that have dogged the peak debate, what people think to be the case rather than what is the case. I also think the key thing is that the consumer is informed and therefore able to make their decisions as well. I think that's what we're all moving towards, certainly with food. Do you want to buy local or do you want to buy organic or do you want to ideally do both? So this is informed consumers. It's about transparency, isn't it? Yes, Mm. and I think it's very, very important. It leads me on to, as the purchaser of a bag of potting compost, there are two key questions. One, price. Two, performance. So let's deal with performance first. Mm -hmm. We know from the research you've done and we know from the number of people that use Melcourt Silver Grow products, which are peat-free, excellent performance. Thank you. (laughs) I think one of their strengths, the the Silver Grow, which is the retail range, is that they are the same recipes, the same formulae that we use for the professional grower. And we decided at the outset not to compromise on quality because we thought, well, there's no point in us trying to compete solely on price with the likes, well, with some of the much bigger companies that are out there because we'd never win that game. We're not big enough. And we don't. We didn't want to sell on price. We, we believe that there are enough gardeners out there who would far rather have a bag of compost that works than one that costs them a pound less. Because that's often course, what we're talking about. And, of course, you were dogged from a historical point of view of peat-free products which performed very badly initially. Yes, they did. And it's that being able to persuade people, actually, forget that now. We've moved on. Yes. And now peat-free products perform just as well as the peat-based ones. They they do, um, or they can do, and I, ours, I'm happy to say, have it has been shown independently many by times by a well-known consumer by a well-known consumer organisation that ours have, have outperformed some of the peat-based. So we've shown very clearly that it can and and is being done. But yes, for for people who were gardening and trying to buy peat-free products 15 years ago, it does leave a strong legacy if you get a failure. If you lose yes. three or four weeks in the spring 
with your seeds, it does leave its mark. And yes. we, we, we do know that. Um, and we do understand it. And it's our job gradually, gradually to try and spread the good word. And, and a lot of people help us along the, that way. But I also think the length of research and the depth of research that you've gone into yes. has and paid off. One of the other projects that was distilled out of the task force was a performance standard. At the moment, there are no performance standards for growing media that anyone can refer to. This year, those of us that are taking part, and it's most of the major producers, for the first time, um, a system, a protocol has been developed that will judge multi-purpose growing media. We now have a scheme that we have to follow. We have to show the evidence, photographic, you know, sort of report writing and whatever, and we will be audited on it to demonstrate that not only, you know, it's all very well having a very, very environmentally sound product, but if it doesn't grow anything... Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a problem. Hopefully we'll also have some measure of appearance on bags in, in due course. Is the higher price, and let's be honest, it is a higher price, what does that reflect? It reflects that the ingredients are higher in price. However, I think we're moving to a situation where the low price of peat, bearing in mind that compost hardly costs any more now than it did 10 years ago, have have the true environmental costs of peat been factored into that price? The peat companies have this asset in the ground. What price is being put on that? And I think we, we may see more of this, that they are forced by fiscal means to actually have a, a, an environmental cost as part of the price, which would put the and we also know that well over two-thirds of the peat that's used now in bagged compost has been imported. Yes, a lot. Mostly from Eastern Europe, also well, from the Irish Republic. Mostly from Ireland yeah. at the moment. And um, I, I have a particular bee in my bonnet, actually, about the price of retail comp- compost. I, I, I do feel that our industry has allowed growing media to be viewed by the gardening public as a cheap add-on at the end of your purchasing the thing that you stick in the car at the end that has a low value when in fact it's a fundamental building block of good gardening and if it goes wrong in the spring or indeed at any time it's really disheartening it really matters we should be championing growing media and one of our bags might cost somebody sorry about this comparison but the same as a bottle of wine which might be gone in depending who you are (laughs) might be gone in an evening you think of the potential of a bag of growing medium at say £6.50 massive potential fun enjoyment in the garden wildlife value you, you the list of things from that you can do with a bag of compost so so price yes our products are never going to be the cheapest we believe they're a fair price it's not that we're making massive massive profits and that we could sell them at a lower price people can know that they will work that that their sustainability or their responsibility is being counted that's not what i'm saying but um I think the old adage, you get what you pay for. And I'm with Catherine out in the composting area. And as you can probably hear, there are large forklift trucks, massive lorries moving around us and bags upon bags of compost. It's heading to the peak season, so we're about as stocked up as as we'll ever be. If you like, we can walk down to that end and come back in this direction and have a look at some of the ingredients. Yes, and with your trained eye, you can tell the difference between all these large, dark brown mountains. (laughs) 
And we're entering an area now where there's a massive tractor. So I'm glad we've got our yellow high-vis jackets on. I have to say, Catherine, one of the things before we start is what a nice smell there is here. It's the first thing that any visitor to the yard notices. It's a piney, barky, woody sort of smell, isn't it? nice and fresh. It is. It is nice, yes. So here we are in front of the first of the great big brown piles. What's this? This is is reconstituted coir. Wow. So this is ready to go into the compost. Okay, let's move on to the next one before the big digger comes to get us. This is silver fibre, which is um, our brand, if you like, of of wood fibre. It's our particular recipe that we've developed over the last 25 years. This is the one that's composted with nitrogen, so it's not applicable for organic mixes, but it's a a very lovely dark brown Yes, it's darker than the It also seems to be slightly, is that steam or smoke or something vapour coming off? Oh, it's it's water vapour. It's just condensing as it comes out. It's, it's a composting process and these piles are very, very good insulators so it, you can have a hard frost on the outside and burrow your way in through that hard frosted layer and the heat can be just even just 18 inches down into the pile. Oh, yes, that is yes. warm, isn't it? It is very warm. Oh, because... it's lovely. Oh, we've just put out quite a few pheasant. <laughs> it is, I have to say, very rural around here despite all yes. the heavy machinery. And this is a this is a newt fence, so we, we have great crested newts on site. So now we wander back to where the composts are actually made. We've moved from the mountains to a large industrial hangar, it looks like. You say it was an old World War II aircraft hangar. Yes. (laughs) You can probably hear we're right in the heart of making the mix and also bagging it down at the far end. That's what's making all the noise. Yes. So these are the hoppers of fertilizer. See the big bags up there? These are, these are highly mechanised dosing units that all the time are dropping exactly the right little sprinkle of fertiliser onto the moving conveyor, which has come in from outside. And as always, I find it fascinating that the size of the scale of the mix and yet the precision, yes. the, the, the mechanics yes. of it work. Yes, exactly, exactly. We're about to be mown down by a forklift truck, so I think we'll move out of the way here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Catherine, we're in out of the cold, noisy bagging area, but that was fascinating. But I see down beside you there's a bag for life. Yes, it's a new scheme that we've started this year, encouraged by one of our customers who created um, a system whereby they buy one of our maxi bales, which uses a lot less plastic, and and then a little bit like the bag for life in a supermarket the customer buys the bag for life the first time it holds about 40 liters the garden center decants from the maxi bale into the bag for life and then the customer keeps coming back with their reusable bag you're solving two problems one you're peat free and two single-use plastic that's that's right Kath I'm so grateful to you I've learned more about composts and growing media than I ever thought I wanted to know but it's It's really been very helpful. I think what it's done more importantly is given us gardeners an informed choice as to what we buy when we buy potting compost. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you found Catherine's interview interesting. I certainly look at potting compost with new eyes and newfound knowledge. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe to the other Garden Organic podcasts. Every month we have a new guest plus helpful tips and advice on how to grow the organic way. Bye for now.